1 Thessalonians chapter 4, finally then, brethren, Paul has still got two more chapters, so it's not as if like uh, some of us preachers, he's saying, and finally, uh, and then has so much more to say. What he's really saying is, now this is the second main section of my letter to you. The first three chapters, looking back at what God has done and Paul defending his conduct, leaving them so soon after they were converted. And then chapters four and five, looking forward. And Paul, in uh, the first 12 verses of chapter four, is looking at the all-important question of how do we live as believers in a hostile world? Uh, last uh, time, we looked at the first two verses where he just made a general statement that our walk, and that's a word that the Bible uses to describe our lifestyle as Christians, that our walk is different to that of the world round about us. We're walking in a different direction to a different beat. So we walk the walk as believers. And let me say, there has never been a time when the world hasn't been hostile. Did you get that? There has never been a time when the world hasn't been against us. Even if we would have been alive in the second half, maybe the middle of the 19th century in Wales, which was the golden age of preaching, you still had the world. Maybe it was a bit more subtle then, but it was still the world. So we are always going to be living in a hostile environment. We're traveling through. Home is going to be the heavenly Canaan. Now, what Paul goes on to do in uh, the next verses, verses 3 to 12, is look at two areas where it's vital that we are to be different to the world. The first is the one we're going to begin tonight, and that's in terms of sexual purity. Very relevant, isn't it, to the society in which we are living in. So verses 3 to 8 is how can I remain pure in terms of sexual morality as a Christian? Whether you're single, whether you're, you're married, it doesn't matter. And then verses 9 to 12, how can we love one another? And that is really important as well, because as believers, we don't seem to be doing very well in that departments. So let's start looking at sexual purity. I did pray that the Lord would give me the right words uh, because we are not to be prudish when dealing with this area. The Victorians, they just thought that there was something bad about sex. That's not the view of the Bible. God created sex. Sex is a gift of God. The problem with sexual immorality is that a good gift of God has been abused. So that's one danger. The other danger, of course, which is the danger of our society today, and many so-called Christians are just being 
towed along by this is that anything goes. That's not right. We're not to be governed by our culture's view of things, but by the word's view. So let's look at this area of how do I stay pure? I think you're going to look at it in the men's breakfast on Saturday, and you'll be a bit more practical maybe then. But let's look at these verses and ask, what do they teach us about being pure in an age where there is so much licentiousness around? Uh, I said the last time we were looking at these verses that our country is going back to what society was like in the days of the New Testament church. Our uh, Judeo-Christian framework has more or less been destroyed, and we're going back to a Greco-Roman framework. So there was all sorts of sexual immorality and amorality in the days that Paul lived in, just like today. If you don't believe me, you just have to look at the ruins of Pompeii and look at some of the positions that some of the men and the women were discovered in when the ash came down all of a sudden. There's nothing new under the sun. But what strikes us is this. Paul isn't interested in the world. Even though society, I think, was even worse morally than our society is. Paul does not condemn the world. There is no mention in the book of Acts of the church protesting about the state of society. What you've got is the church proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, we are not here as a church to point the finger at the world. We are here to show a better way. Now, there is nothing wrong in us as citizens of a democracy using our rights to protest. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the place of the church to protest. The church is here to proclaim And as Spurgeon said, the best way to show the crookedness of a stick, think of the crookedness of our society, is to put a straight stick next to it. Brothers and sisters, let us show a better way. If we used our energies more in this direction, I'm sure, I'm sure we would have a greater effect on the world. Now then, how do I remain pure? Whatever my condition, however old I am, whether I'm married or single or about to be married, how do I stay pure? Well, again, Paul doesn't start by jumping into details. He first makes a general statement again. Paul loves his general principles. He starts with a general principle, and then you work that out in your particular situation. So in verse 3, we'll have a statement concerning our identity. And then you will have a negative command at the end of verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality. And then from verse 4 to verse 8, you'll have positive reasons why we are to uh, be sexually pure. So there's first a general statement, then a negative command, and then positive motives. We're not going to look at them all tonight. We'll just start with this statement about our identity. Do you know who you are as a Christian? I remember one young man, a Christian 
young man coming to Aberystwyth as a student, and his father was a believer, and his father gave him a good piece of advice. All his father said to him was, remember whose you are. Isn't that good? Do you know your identity as a Christian? Isn't this part of the confusion today? There are so many identities. But when I look at the New Testament, what the writers concentrate on is one thing. We are Christ's. We are Christ's. Now, how does Paul put it in verse 3? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I'm a holy one as a Christian. That's what the word sanctification means. It means being holy. And there are two important meanings to sanctification. And the first is the most important one and the one we tend to forget. Something is set apart for God. We call that positional sanctification. So in the temple, all the vessels were sanctified vessels because they were set apart for God. This day, and especially in the old covenants, the Sabbath day was sanctified. It was set apart for God. And so my identity as a Christian is holiness to the Lord, just like the priest uh, having those words upon him holiness to the lord i'm a holy one i'm set apart even before we come to the details of how do i overcome temptation especially in this area of sexual immorality remind yourself first of who you are i'm a holy one i'm a saint do you realize you're a saint here this evening that comes from the word sanctified believe it or not let me give you an example. Uh, there was another church, unlike the church at Thessalonica. This was a much larger church, had much uh, bigger characters in it, uh, in a city that was renowned for immorality, Corinth. And they weren't really maintaining sexual purity at Corinth, right? But how does Paul address them? Do you know how, how he writes uh, in 1 Corinthians? He writes to the saints in the New King James, those who have been sanctified. Dear me, you say, can they be saints in Corinth? Look at their lifestyle. They can't be saints, but the point is this. A saint is a person who's been set apart. We've misunderstood the whole concept of a saint. We think a saint is somebody who is eminently godly. And if you take the Roman Catholic teaching, to be elevated to a saint, you've got to be dead. Well, there are no saints here. And I'm also told you've got to have a sense of humor and to have performed a miracle. Well, there's no hope, is there? But if Paul is calling the ordinary believers at Corinth saints because they've been set apart to the Lord, then you and I are saints. It doesn't matter how much you fail the Lord, especially in this area. I remember as a Christian young man, I thought often that I wasn't a Christian because I fell into the same temptation in this area of sexual purity again and again. And I didn't realize that my identity was that of a holy one. I'm a saint. You're a saint. Let's live as saints. 
uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Paul dealing with, again, sexual immorality in Corinth says in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been sanctified. It's not you are being sanctified. It's the aorist tense, once and for all. You have been set apart. So that's the first meaning of sanctification. But the meaning here is connected to it. It's not just set apart as holy. It's being made holy then. That's what Paul is thinking of here. This is God's will, your sanctification. God's will for you and for me is that we are made more pure. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Words from Leviticus quoted in the first letter to Peter. But we are being made holy because we have been set apart. Do you get it? There's a difference, isn't there? between sanctification and justification. When uh, I was in the Welsh Christian Union in Aberystwyth, we used to give fancy titles to the speakers. And one poor speaker had the title Justification and Sanctification. I don't know if CUs have titles like that these days. Justification is a once and forever declaration by God that we are 100% legally not guilty, righteous, imputed righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is put into your account and mine. That's justification. It's not a process justification. You are as justified as those who are in heaven. Do you realize that? In spite of your falling into sin, especially in this area, that does not affect your standing before God. That does not make you less forgiven than you were the day you were saved. And you are as justified now as you will be when you stand before him in glory. Justification. But sanctification, in terms of the process, is not once and for all. Because we've been set apart as holy, the process is beginning to make us intrinsically pure. What did Mr. Hyam call it? He called it imparted righteousness. So the imputed righteousness of Christ is once and forever. But then we are changing. We are being made more like Jesus Christ. And this is the will of God for you and for me. Uh, Let me give you some other verses Uh, It comes up a little later, doesn't it? Uh, God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. A few verses down. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So I need to remind myself of whose I am. I am God's. I am a child of a holy God. I've been set apart. I'm a saint. I may not feel like a saint. I didn't feel like a saint when I got up out of bed this morning. But I'm a saint. And God in his sovereignty, my Father, who is working together all things for my good, is working towards my sanctification, not my happiness. I think we've been too uh, influenced by the hedonistic society in which we're living in. Uh, Hedonism is all about pleasure. God's Will isn't your happiness. It's your sanctification. Happiness is a byproduct, I think, of sanctification. Can I just 
give you some personal references here. I was in a coffee shop a few days ago, not our own. This wouldn't have happened in our own. And I was waiting for 10 minutes for my black Americano. It doesn't take long to make a black Americano. They'd forgotten about me. They were serving other people who were behind me. They were, they were serving them and they were giving them their coffee and I was still standing there. The, the, the lady who had been behind me and had gone before me, she said, sorry, I said, it's all right, it's for my sanctification. <laughs> the next day, I was in the supermarket, and it took ages. It really took ages. And then today, getting to church... It took me double the time. And it got me thinking as I was preparing for tonight. Maybe the Lord is trying to teach me some patience. God's will for me in these last few days has been for my patience to be exercised. If, if you do any sort of physical exercise, there is some form of resistance, isn't there? So whether it's cardiovascular or whether it's weights, you've got to exercise against some sort of resistance. Otherwise, your muscles aren't going to develop. And it's a bit like that with our spiritual muscles. There's got to be resistance. And that's why things happen to us. It seems at times that everything is going wrong. Why should I complain of want or distress, temptation of pain? Do you realize God's will for you and all the things that are happening to you are happening in order to make you more sanctified? Is it in Florence, Michelangelo's statue of David? Is it Florence? It looks amazing, doesn't it? It's near perfect. All the proportions. I think he was the fourth sculptor to have a go. At first, it was just a block of marble and three sculptors before him, including Donatello, said, there's no hope for that block of marble. I can't do anything with it. Don't you feel like that block of marble? Who am I? I'm just a nobody. I'm just a useless believer. I don't think I am a believer even. And maybe people have given up on you. Maybe the church has given up on you. But he hasn't. Michelangelo saw David in that block of marble. And God is seeing the image of Christ in the nobodies that we are. And do you know what he's doing? He's chipping away. Didn't Mr. Hyam have the illustration about uh, God bringing out sometimes a big chisel? Oh no, not that chisel. Don't worry. He's refining us. When grace is well refined, my heart. He's knocking off those rough edges and he's making us into the image of his son. So that's the first thing. Before we get into the details of how do I overcome that particular temptation, 
realize your identity. If only, if only we realized that we are set apart and that God is not going to give up on us, that God is going to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Are we more Christ-like now, today, than we were 10 years ago? That's searching, isn't it, to ask that. And then let's start. I'm not going to have time to finish. Let's start then the next point. Then there's a negative. And we've got to start with a negative when it comes to sexual temptation because this passion is so powerful. So Paul in verse 3 again, this statement about our identity, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then here's the negative, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain is so strong. It means have nothing to do. It means cut yourself off. And the word sexual immorality, that's an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word pornia. We get our word pornography from it. And so it doesn't just refer to uh, being unfaithful in a marriage. It doesn't just refer to sleeping outside of the marriage bond with another man or a woman. It also refers to the intents of the heart. Uh, it refers to looking at somebody to lust after them. It's the second look, isn't it? The first look, we may say how beautiful that person may be, but the second look, we want them. It's as if we undress them in our mind. Now, that is as much sexual immorality in God's eyes than the actual sleeping with a person. Let me give you the words of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were basically saying, as long as you haven't slept with another man or a woman outside of marriage, you're all right. You can tick that box. But Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lust for her or him has already committed adultery in his hearts. And look at the word that Paul uses, lustful passion. Verse 5, the passion of lust. It's a drive, isn't it? The sex drive. Now, as I said at the start, we mustn't make that drive into something bad in and of itself. God has created us with different lusts or desires. So there is the desire for food. Uh, there is the desire uh, for territory. And there is this desire for sexual intercourse. There is nothing wrong with that in and of itself. It is something that God gave us as his created beings. But what the fall has done is twist those things. So all those different desires, whether it's the desire for food or the desire for more territory, they've, they've become perverted. They've become turned in the wrong way. Uh, Williams Pantakelin. You know Williams Pantakelin, the Welsh hymn writer? I used to imagine he was an old man when he wrote his hymns. He wasn't. He was only in his 20s. He's the same age as you students. And in one hymn, he prays to God that he would turn his lusts around. He doesn't pray that he would stop those lusts. We're not robots, my friends. Pantakelin, and he was before his time, I think, 
he was praying that God would redirect his lusts so that instead of going in a, an unclean direction, they would go in a pure direction. And even talks about them playing like a harp, attuned to the glory of God. I can't translate it. I can't. So I think we'll leave the, the section here tonight. But how do I deal with sexual immorality? How do I remain pure in an age that bombards me with all sorts of confusing messages and impure messages? The first thing is, realize your identity. Remind yourself daily. I'm a Christian. I'm a saint. I belong to a holy father. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We'll come to that in a few Sundays. And his will for me is to make me pure. Not make me unnatural, but make me pure. And so I remind myself then, coming to the second point, that I avoid all things that cause me to be tempted. I don't think we're going to have time uh, to start opening that up. But you can't play with this, right? It's fire. Uh, Paul talks to the Corinthians about burning lust. You can't play with fire. You avoid the very things, even if they're innocent things, that cause you to be tempted. And that's going to be different to all of us. So what Paul doesn't do, what I'm not going to do, is give you a list of things. A list of things that you can't do, a list of things that you can do. No, no. What we've got to do is avoid this burning lust that can cause us to fall so suddenly and avoid whatever tempts us to that. And you've got to know yourself and know what causes you to fall. And we've got to be wise in sharing with one another and we've got to help one another in this area, because no one is perfect. I'm sure there are young Christians here tonight who feel a sense of shame because they think that they are the only ones who are struggling in this area. You are not. If you were to ask anybody here this evening, if they were honest, they would say, I understand completely. May we help one another in this area. Not drag us down, but build one another up.